are delighted to be joined in conversation with His Excellency Jean-Arthur Regibault today. Uh, the ambassador represents His Majesty, the King of the Belgians, and Belgium's federal government in the United States of America and in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas. He's responsible for the direction and work of the embassy and its consulates, including bilateral political and economic relations, visa, and consular services. Ambassador Regibo joined the Belgian Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1998 and has served at the Belgian embassies in Berlin, Russia, Armenia, Belarus, and Uzbekistan. Mr. Regibo studied at the State University of Liège, where he obtained his master's degree in law in 1984. From there, he went on to obtain a certificate in international law from the State University of Leiden in the Netherlands in 1985. One year later, he joined the John Hopkins University SAIS program in Bologna, Italy, where he obtained a diploma in international relations. Ambassador Regibo has been a guest professor on European institutions and Europe and globalization at the University of Liège. He also gave lectures on globalization and security issues at the Defense Ministry in Brussels. Please join me in welcoming His Excellency Jean-Arthur Regibo. Good morning, everyone. So, Ambassador, I was hoping we could start with a little introduction to your background um, and, and give us some context for, for who you are and, and how you work in today's world. Um, you refer to yourself as the son of a miracle. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how your family history has shaped your worldview and what it means to you to hold the position you do today? Yes, uh, yes for sure. Uh, I'll start with the, um, uh, the happiest part, uh, that my father was Belgian and my mother was Swiss. Uh, French speaking on the father's side, German speaking on the uh, mother's side. Actually, for those who know Switzerland, not really German, but Swiss German, which is a bit different, right? And so I grew up in a, in a big, big cultural family, um, listening to, to two languages, not at home. My mother uh, only spoke French but visiting uh, Switzerland two or three times uh, a year. So there was an international element in my life uh, since I was born. Uh, now the, the other part, uh, a bit heavier, uh, the fact that I'm the son of a miracle, is that my, my father was actually born in 1915, so that's more than a century ago. He was um, 47 when I was born. Uh, my, my mother was much younger. Um, but my, my father himself was uh, a miracle because during World War II, um, when uh, Belgium lost the, the initial war to uh, the German invader uh, in May 1940, my father decided to um, keep his weapon and enter immediately into uh, the resistance to resist occupation by Nazi Germany. Uh, he was cuffed by the Gestapo uh, about two years later and spent the rest of the year in, in, in the of the war, i.e. until April 1945, uh, in German prison and uh, concentration camps. So um, he was liberated in April 1945 in Dachau by the 7th U.S. Army. And so actually, I know that without your own ancestor, I would simply not be here uh, if Americans had not come to help us 
together with the French, the Brit, and the Soviet to liberate uh, Europe from uh, the scourge of Nazism. Uh, and uh, really a miracle because when he came back from the concentration camps, my father was told by the doctors that he had another six months to live after three years uh, of such a regime. And he, he lived for another 34 years. So in that sense, I'm really the son of a miracle. Thank you for sharing that. That's such a, a powerful history that I'm sure you draw from every day in your work. Well, it explains why the, the, the very concept of freedom and human dignity uh, matters to me. Yeah. Thank you. So I understand also, and, and you know, I do a lot of travel with my role into Europe, and I'm always interested in understanding perspectives of the, the folks I interact with, but specifically about what they think about America and, and our belief system and, and how we act. So um, in your experience, which I heard that you worked as a tour guide for Belgian tourists at one time. Uh, what do you think is the, the toughest thing for most Belgians to grasp about the United States? Uh, well, quite a few things. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, you know, what, what is amazing is that we all know in Europe, we know the United States uh, because of TV, movies, etc. But actually, coming to the US is a totally different experience. Um, and, uh, of course, we tend to compare with our own experience at home. Um, and uh, there are things that are just fantastic. Uh, everything seems to be possible here, uh, which is on the plus side. But on the negative side, everything is possible, both negative and positive. Um, and so um, I think the, the, the first fact um, for Belgian tourists is the sheer size of this country. Uh, you know, Belgium is the size of Maryland. So in three hours, you can cross the country. Three hours by car or by train. Here, you need six hours by plane from one side of the, one side, uh, of the country to the other, and I'm not even mentioning Alaska and Hawaii. Um, so the sheer size, I think, it explains a lot. Uh, and, and for example, um, the fact that um, you, you, you travel so much by plane, uh, that you have big cars uh, consuming a lot of gas. Uh, it, it always uh, comes as a surprise for Belgians. We have a tiny territory uh, with 12 million people. So uh, on the size of uh, Maryland, we have the population of Ohio and the GDP of Ohio, so it, which means a, a very high level of concentration of people everywhere in the country. Thank you. So, so through that lens, you know, I want to shift a little bit to current events and, and keeping in mind the, the, the Belgian ideology, if there is such a thing. What do Belgians tend to think about the U.S.'s stance on Israel, for example? Well, actually, if we look at the, the stance taken by the Biden administration, it's not that different. Um, uh, we, we keep um, uh, saying uh, two things. First, uh, attacks by Hamas were the attacks by a terrorist group. Uh, Hamas has been recognized as a terrorist group for a long time by the European Union. I, it means by all the member states like Belgium. Uh, this is a hate crime. There is no, no other word for that. Um, now, on the other side, when, uh, whereas we do recognize, of course, the right of Israel to defend itself, we also believe that Israel uh, has a duty to respect international humanitarian law. 
Uh, and uh, our Prime Minister clearly said a few weeks ago that uh, it came to a point where actions by the Israeli Defense Force are no longer proportionate to the goal, i.e. you cannot uh, bombard a whole refugee camps with thousands of people just because you want to target one individual. Um, and so that you have also to, to choose the means according to the mission properly. And we believe that's also part of our civilization uh, in the West. Um, you know, the, the Israeli conflict is, is relatively new, all things considered. Um, I'm wondering, do you see a connection between the conflict between Russia and Ukraine and what we see going on in the Middle East at this time? Well, if there is one common factor, it's um, the, the will to, to grab territory. Um, so clearly, uh, the, the Kremlin nowadays is intent on taking control of Ukraine. Uh, taking back control of Ukraine as they presented, something we do not share as a worldview. And um, in the Middle East, it has been since 1947 and the decision by the United Nations, a question of who is going to um, control which territory. So the UN made it clear that part of this territory was for uh, Israel, uh, but another part should be for the Palestinians. And one part has been fulfilled, the other one has not. And that's probably one of the reasons why we still have so many tensions in the Middle East nowadays. Zooming out even further, um, how do you feel the investments being made by China and some of the relationships that they're creating play into that you know, global geopolitical situation? Well, I think that there has been uh, quite a few eyes openers, uh, not just in the US, but also in Europe. Uh, for example, just a few days ago, there was in the Washington Post uh, a big article with a world map and a list of all the, the ports where China had invested money. Quite a few of them in Europe, but would you know, also quite a few in the United States, especially on the West Coast. Um, and we, we came to conclude that it does not happen just um, uh, as a leisure or may, maybe not uh, even only for economic interest. There is a strategy behind it. Uh, as I w when I was a political director in our foreign ministry, I clearly saw a, a Chinese strategy when it came to the multilateral organizations. They were trying to uh, put their own people at the head of, uh, of quite a few of them. And um, when we see that happen, we always uh, deeply regret uh, the absence of the United States from these multilateral organizations. We do understand that here the administration do not al does not always believe in multilateralism, but when you guys are not present, it means that it's much di more difficult for people like us Europeans to counter this type of, of behavior. So with, with Belgium obviously being the seat of NATO, what, what implications do you see for NATO in a response to all of these situations that are brewing simultaneously? Well, actually, for NATO, NATO is not involved in any of the three uh, big strategic challenges you just mentioned, Ukraine, Middle East, and China. Uh, and, it, and it has to be so, uh, because NATO, we, we need to uh, remind everyone, uh, is a defensive organization. And so it guarantees the security and the territorial integrity of all member states, which means BOSS, the United States, and Belgium, for example, and many other countries uh, in, in Europe. But Ukraine is not a member. And NATO is not involved in Ukraine, uh, contrary to what the, the, the Kremlins uh, pretend. 
Now, we do indeed almost, uh, or, or actually uh, all NATO countries, we do support Ukraine, but not as NATO members. We do it as individual states or and uh, members of the European Union. NATO is not involved as such in Ukraine, but there has always been clear statements from the Secretary General, don't touch an inch of NATO territory. And I can tell you from my own experience of four years in Moscow, the Russians do not intend to, taste, to test uh, NATO because they know that NATO is a strong organization and it should remain so. That's a really important distinction you made. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, having spent time in Russia, um, what can you tell us about what you think is going on in the mind of, of Putin and some of his advisors right now? Well, uh, you know, many people try to guess what's going on in, in, in Putin's uh, mind. Uh, but remember, he's a spy and he's used to lying. Um, the most blatant example and the, the best evidence uh, we, we, I can remember was in 2014 when uh, Russia seized Crimea. At the beginning of March, uh, when we, we saw a little green man appear in Crimea, Putin, the Russian president, said, well, you know, these people have nothing to do with me or with Russia. They are just locals trying to, to uh, uh, seize autonomy. But just four weeks later, when the operation had succeeded and he had organized a shame um, uh, referendum uh, in, in, in Crimea to annex the, uh, the area, he said, oh, actually, I can tell you now, these little green men, they were Russian soldiers. So this guy is a natural liar. This we have to remember. Now we also have to try to understand um, not just Vladimir Putin is the boss, is probably calling the shot in, in the Kremlin, but there are also 140 million Russians. And it does not mean that these 140 millions always agree with their boss. It's just that it's not a democracy. And it's not even an authoritarian regime. It's a sheer dictatorship. And Russians are simply not allowed to express their views. And according to uh, opinion polls that can still be taken seriously, about 20% of the population is opposed to, this, to that war. And I would say from my own experience, about 40% would really support it, would actually buy the arguments and the propaganda from the Kremlin. But you have the remaining 40% somewhere in the, in the middle. And they have a typically Russian attitude is, well, too dangerous to touch it. Better not to, to discuss it, to mention it, and I will just look elsewhere and uh, uh, not take any stance. Because there is a risk. In, in, in Russia, if you speak against uh, Putin, even maybe just two words, the risk is not only that you could go to jail or your husband could uh, lose the job, uh, but some people are just killed inadvertently, right? Uh, it does happen that some people just jump out of the window in Moscow. Um, so you can understand that these people tend to be careful. But there is also another aspect. It's the fatalistic uh, look of Russians at politics. You have to realize that the social contract is totally different from ours. So Russians uh, used to tell me, well, you know, we are Europeans. And I believe it, because really, culturally, they are truly European. Just look at the literature, classical music, ballet. We are very close to each other, except in one respect, politics. In our system, and this we have in common between uh, Europe and the US, we have a system of checks and balances. We want to control the people we elect, 
and we want to be able to get rid of them if we are not satisfied, right? That's, that's the deal. In Russia, not at all. Just think of the old uh, Roman Empire where they elected a dictator to protect the security of the empire. But the difference is in Rome, they elected a dictator for one year. In Russia, they elected for life. And it's not new with Putin. Actually, I would argue that Putin is back to the normal in Russian tradition. The system has existed for close to a thousand years. Boris Yeltsin was the exception when he was properly elected through fair and free elections. Putin has not. But it, it does not mean that we should underestimate the, the weight of real popular support for Putin in Russia. You, you mentioned the role of, of information and misinformation um, here in the U.S. entering an election year. Uh, I think we are all sort of looking to see you know, what the implications of things like chat GPT and advancements in AI technology will bring in terms of misinformation. Can you speak a little bit about um, what Belgium does specifically to avoid misinformation being proliferated or, or what you would aspire to do? Well, I, I think that, um, as you all know, we have a stronger regulation on the European side, uh, which has its pro and cons. Uh, but certainly on the positive side is that um, it's not just Belgium acting, it's also the European Commission. We realize that when we have uh, to face a giant worldwide corporations like Google or, or Apple, uh, Belgium is just too small for that type of negotiation or regulation. But when we can tell these uh, corporations, well, you better respect the rules, otherwise you might be excluded from a market of 450 million people. Um, then it makes them think. And what I can tell you is that when we, we do have issues, and it does happen, uh, there is now a rather good cooperation with these companies because they know that um, their uh, social media, for example, is sometimes used for criminal ends or illegal ends, like trying to influence elections. Um, and the European Commission is entitled also to fine these companies to, uh, to uh, amounts of $800 million uh, or the like. So it makes them uh, think twice. So that's one way. Um, uh, and of course, we also organize um, uh, regulations like Digital Service Act, Digital uh, Market Access, uh, <coughs> And that is very important for us to send the message. Yes, you have access, but be aware there are conditions and we want to protect our integrity. Great. So, so that describes on the structural side how that is combated. Um, can you talk a little bit more about from an individual perspective, what kinds of things can individuals in this room do to make sure that they're avoiding or at least applying a critical eye to some of the misinformation that might be out? Well, uh, that's more of an issue because we here in, in Europe, we also have the same issue as here, is that, um, if I may say so, uh, too many people are gullible. They just believe whatever is printed uh, in, in the newspaper or nowadays what, uh, whatever is published uh, in social media. They don't even check. Um, you know, when I was uh, the age of the students here, uh, 18, the, the, the saying was, well, no, you know, I, I read it in the newspaper, so it's true not even checking. And sometimes it was plainly false. Well, exactly the same with social media. Just think about what you're reading. And if you, your first reaction is, it's incredible. Maybe indeed it is incredible and it is not uh, true. 
So just think about it. Uh, it's uh, because we, as human beings, we, we probably have the normal tendency of believing everything we see. Well, just think twice about it. Maybe you see only part of the truth, or you are presented with false facts, but because they want to influence you. So uh, one of the main uh, aspects, I think, of um, facing down these tricks is education, critical mind, just always ask questions to yourself and to your friends, and don't believe everything at face value. That's great advice. And, and, and drawing on that theme of you know, just cooperation in general and, and relying on the people around you, um, I want to go back to the idea of the U.S. and Belgium's relationship. And the U.S. counts Belgium as one of its longest-standing allies from 1832. Um, and I, I'm curious how you view that relationship and that partnership enduring in balance with um, a desire for stronger European industry, stronger European um, identity. How, how do you see that um, evolving? Well, you know, for us it's very easy. Um, first, Belgium is, is a country of barely 12 million, and we have a very small territory at the heart of Europe. Um, just look at the map of Europe for the last four centuries and put a dot on the map for any major battle. And you will see a heavy concentration just in the middle of the map, which happens to be today's Belgian territory. Do you know where Waterloo is? Well, 15 kilometers south of Brussels. And at least if there is a battle known in the world in history, that's Waterloo, right? Um, and at some point, the Belgian just said, we have enough of war. And we had two more in the 20th century, 1914, 1939. And we tried the neutrality concept. We were a neutral nation in both cases. And twice we were invaded by the neighbor. So after the Second World War, we came to the conclusion neutrality is not doing the trick for us. So what we do need is solidarity with partners, uh, with our immediate neighbors, uh, but also with the United States. And so for us, a strong transatlantic relationship just comes as something natural. Um, most of our territory were, was liberated in 1945 by British and Canadian American troops. And we still remember that. You know, that's something I, I often have to, to remind American audience. We in Belgium, we know what war means. Even so, if I was not yet born, you know, it's in our collective memory. Uh, the landscape has been changed by the millions of bombs that were launched on, on our own country, especially in the First World War. Uh, as, I as I told you, my father was a prisoner for three years in Nazi concentration camps, and my experience is far from unique. So we know what war is, and uh, that's why we, we prize uh, peace so much. But then we have to give ourselves the means to preserve peace. And the best means to, to do it, we know, is through solidarity. Now there are two aspects to this solidarity. When it comes to security, obviously, um, uh, it's not just our neighboring countries, it's also about the United States, if only because of the sheer importance of nuclear weapons. Never forget about that. But also, after the war, World War II, our territories were totally devast devastated, not just Belgium, the whole of Europe, more or less. Even Britain, that had not been invaded, had been heavily bombed. So we needed to rebuild our countries. Um, and we decided to work together. And there was also a big uh, American financial support through the Marshall Plan. And it all worked 
so well that actually nowadays everybody wants to be a member of the European Union. And so for Belgians, once again, it came so naturally. We are a trading nation. Uh, we, we just like to have our neighbors visiting us and we like to visit our neighbors as civilians, as industrialists, as customers, as tourists, never as military. So that's a big difference. And I think that's a big success of the European Union. And for us, there is absolutely no contradiction between these two aspects, the transatlantic relationship and European integration. Quite the opposite. They are fully complementary. Um, and it's not just that NATO is taking care of the military and the EU of prosperity, because actually we need to do everything together. Not just um, military for NATO, the EU also needs to develop its own military identity. When I hear Americans saying that Europe should spend more on defense, well, actually, we do agree. But what can a country of 12 million do alone? Well, not much nowadays, right? We cannot develop an arms system, for example. So we need to do it with our immediate neighbors. And it will bring not just security, but also uh, research and development, jobs, uh, science, etc. So when we have a stronger Europe, we will also have a stronger NATO, because Europe is so, uh, it's, it's about half of NATO. So if we strengthen one half, the whole will be stronger. What a strong note to end this conversation on. I know that we have a, a huge group of students here who are eager to ask you some questions, and so I'm going to give some of them the opportunity to do so. Who'd like to go first? Oh, all right, I see an eager hand here with Beckett. <laughs> Thank you so much for this uh, really informative discussion. I've really enjoyed this. Um, so I have two questions, and the first is, how do you think China is impacting not only Belgium and Europe, but the entire world, especially with this new revolution in technologies that really relies on China. However, with their questionable political views, they are almost a threat to the entire Western world. So what do you think about that? Well, I would probably not go as far as your, your question implies. Um, <laughs> But what we are sure of is that there is a security threat uh, from China. Uh, obviously, we have, once again, uh, as I mentioned Russia before, we have a totally different political system. Uh, so China is also a dictatorship. It's a, a single party uh, regime. Uh, that's, that is something totally foreign to us. And so uh, we have to be in a position all together, the West, uh, collectively, uh, to stand our ground and to defend our way of life, right? We want to keep our democracies. Um, and uh, science, technological development is a challenge. But I would say that it's not only about China, it's also about ourselves. Uh, just think, for example, of artificial intelligence. Well, you know, in my heart, I really feel that this country is still ahead, the United States. And I feel comfortable as a European because Americans are my friends. And uh, China will also face its challenges. Actually, currently is facing also its own challenges. So I'm still confident that a free system like ours will produce better scientific uh, results. Just because of the freedom uh, in our mind, uh, we have to respect a framework which might be decided by Congress, by our government, but there is still a will to move forward. But I would say that we also have to be careful about what we want, for example, about artificial intelligence. 
And all this whole debate uh, about open AI is very interesting. It's um, scientific development for uh, human needs versus commercial interest. I think that's a very important topic. I do not have any conclusion right now, except that probably two, the two aspects are very important. And as you might know, on the European side, we are now um, deeply advanced in trying to regulate artificial intelligence, while also trying not to um, uh, stop um, scientific development. Now, you know, it's about artificial intelligence like it is for um, social media 25 years ago or the invention of powder uh, a few centuries ago. There are very positive aspects, but potentially also very negative. Um, and I, I remember that 25 years ago about the development of internet, many people, especially in Silicon Valley, said, well, that's great. Internet means world's democracy. Well, where are we today? Is it world democracy? Well, far from it. And even internet is used to fight democracy. And this we have to be aware that they are indeed very important aspect, uh, very positive, but also very negative. And uh, let me finish with this reflection, is that now, thanks to all the social media, I am able to talk to my cousin in Switzerland instantly. But maybe I tend to forget to talk to my neighbor. I should not forget my neighbor. Thank you. Next question. Um, of course, uh, internally in Belgium, there's a real dichotomy between uh, the Flemish and uh, the Wallons. And I was wondering if that's affected, uh, well, from your point of view, any foreign relations uh, specifically with the United States? Well, no. Um, you know, uh, we, we have a complex federal system. Actually, even software uh, the size of Maryland, I would argue that our constitution is much more complex than the U.S. constitution. Um, it really needs a specialist to understand, and even specialists sometimes do not agree with each other. I know because that's my field of expertise in, in law. Um, but the, the fact is, it works. Uh, and we've uh, been evolving since 1970 from a unitary system to a very federal system nowadays. It might go even a bit further um, uh, along that path. Um, we have our internal discussion. Uh, but if I may say so before an American public, you know, we do have uh, a big quality is that we know how to find a compromise. Um, in Belgium is not a two-party system. In Parliament, we have 12 political parties, seven from the north, five from the south, and they all do need to find a majority of 50% in a proportional system. So it's not that one or two individuals will be able to decide for the rest, no. We need to talk to each other. Of course, now we are just entering a political campaign because we'll have elections in June, but we need to be together in order to be able to, 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 uh, to decide. And we all know instinctively that if we have no government, it will not be good for the country. And not just for ourselves, but for the whole, also for the economy, also for the European integration, that because we are not able to take a stance. Uh, and so that's the, the, the very positive side of what you mentioned, is that we do have endless debates, and sometimes it lasts for 10 or 15 years, but in the end, we do have a solution. And you know, also sometimes we play on words because as we have two main languages, we have also a third German as an official language, but the two main ones are Dutch and French. 
And when you do write constitutional law, you know, the meaning of one word in Dutch is not 100% the same meaning as in French. And sometimes that's what we call constructive um, ambiguity. But it works. <laughs> Even when we do not have a government for 440 days, like 12 years ago, well, the country did not go bankrupt. And I, I would even say that for most of, of the time, the people just didn't care. They, they went on with their life. <laughs> All right, next question. Oh, we got a, a bunch over here. First of all, uh, thank you so much for uh, com coming out today. Um, my question on the topic of renewable energy, you talked a lot about, about um, us burning a lot of fossil fuels in America, and obviously Europe is way more advanced in <laughs> renewable energy there. So my question is, uh, what advice or what are your thoughts on US implementing more renewable energy throughout the years? Well, it's a, it's a decision for Americans to take, obviously. Um, but I think there are basically two differences between our approaches. First is that, in Europe, we do not have a lot uh, of energy produced locally, like uh, oil and gas. Uh, we had some in the North Sea, but it's clearly going down, except for Norway. Uh, so that we have to find our energy outside our continent. So that's number one. That's not the case here. America is the number one producer of oil and gas in the world. Um, the, uh, the second aspect is that, uh, as I told you, the EU has 450 million people i.e. much more than America, 330, on a much smaller territory, i.e. that we have a lot more people on a smaller territory, which means that the issue of uh, traffic, uh, pollution, uh, climate change is immediately more important for us. Uh, we cannot go 100 kilometers further away to, to find a, a better climate because actually the situation is exactly the same. Um, and if you have New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, uh, we have Paris, Berlin, Milan, Munich, Madrid, and so on and so on. Um, and so there is a drive in Europe um, to find alternatives because we do feel the consequences of climate change and pollution more immediately than you do. And we do not have uh, energy, so we have to be more creative. For example, in Belgium, it's well known, we do not have oil and gas. Even so, if we had shale gas, it is probably not feasible to exploit it because the population would refuse. There is just too much of a risk that water would be polluted. And water is the basic ingredient for life, right? And right now, for example, we have a small scandal because of the pollution um, in one area of the country with the, the um, um, chemical uh, products that n never dilute in, in nature. And it means that uh, water is, is, is um, barely drinkable. And that's a major scandal uh, in, in the country. So, because it affects our life condition, and that's basic, that's water. Energy is also basic. And so the decision quite easily for us was to develop um, uh, off, offshore wind. We do have a small coast, it's only 40 miles long, so it's not much if, you, if we compare it only with Texas. But we already have planned, um, uh, built uh, the, a capacity equivalent to one nuclear plant, and uh, the government has decided to, to multiply it by four in, in the coming years. So we're investing heavily in, in that area, uh, 
there are, uh, there are consequences for birds, uh, for the sea, etc. But we believe that it is much more manageable than uh, pollution from fossil fuels. And that's one example. Now it's for the U.S. to decide for itself. For us, it's clear enough. I saw several hands over here. Thank you. In America, it seems like a lot of people have forgotten about the uh, conflict in Ukraine because of the conflict in um, Gaza. So I'm wondering if the same thing is happening in Europe. No. Uh, and for a, a, a very um, uh, easily understandable reason, actually even two, I would say. First, it's next door. Um, Belgium might be just two, two hours by plane from Kiev. Um, and we know uh, Russia is our neighbor. Just imagine if, if Mexico was in invading a country. What would that mean for you? Well, now you understand what it means to us. That's proximity. But second, it's also uh, human experience. As I mentioned, Belgium itself has been invaded twice in the space of one generation by uh, the, the, the neighboring empire. So we instinctively understand the Ukrainians and what they are faced with. Um, and we also instinctively understand that if Russia is uh, allowed to have its way in Ukraine, what will be the next step? It's not just about Ukraine that we are supporting Ukraine. It's even South, they're admirable. They really deserve uh, not only our, our credits, but our admiration for what they are doing, the, the, the strength they have in resisting aggression. But we're also doing it for ourselves. Um, because if such a behavior, sheer military aggression, is seen as a winning argument, where is it going to happen next in the world? And I can tell you here, especially in Texas, if you don't pay attention now, Let's meet again in 10 years, and let's see where you will have to intervene militarily. Uh, thanks. He just asked the question I was going to ask, but let me just follow up with a different question then. Um, it, uh, uh, which is great. It's great to hear, but you know, I, I'm concerned about, you know, uh, obviously I'm concerned about the U.S. losing its resolve in Ukraine. Um, you know, where there's a lot of political currents in the United States. It, it's complicated, frankly. Um, uh, so I guess I'm a little, is, is Europe actually concerned that the United States will lose its resolve uh, as one of the biggest parties, I guess, as of this alliance? Definitely. Uh, as the uh, EU foreign minister, Mr. Boras, said uh, recently, we know Europe cannot uh, totally replace the United States. Um, now, let me make clear, because sometimes I hear in Congress that Europe is not doing its share and I can only contradict that expression. If you take the whole of support for Ukraine, not just weapons, but also humanitarian, financial support, the cost of sanctions, Europe is doing more than the United States. But it's true that when it comes to weapons, Europe is doing less. We do not have the same capacity as the United States to provide weapons to Ukrainians. And in that sense, we are simply not able to replace the US, that's true. But I would say there is even more than that. Um, if we uh, do not stick together, both Europeans and Americans, we allow Putin to score a point that is able to divide democracies. 
And I think that our main strength, beyond our financial aid, beyond our weapons, the main strength is to show our common resolve. And that's where the Russians will begin to uh, adopt. American that is of Belgian and Congolese origin. I was curious if you had any thoughts um, around the growing tensions in Congo with the election arising or, or coming, um, as well as around cobalt mining and, and generally Belgians' thoughts around the matter. Well, um, you know, uh, Congo has been independent for 63 years now. And so, of course, it's for Congolese to decide uh, about their election and who they vote for. Our role is limited to um, helping making sure that, European, that elections will take place in a fair and free fashion. Unfortunately, we are not always convinced, and the European Union has just decided to cancel its observation mission because we, we are a bit surprised by the conditions, and we believe that the, the conditions for a fruitful observation are not always fulfilled. Um, but it's for the Congolese people to decide, obviously. Now, about cobalt mining, uh, we have been denouncing the, the, the situation uh, for decades because that's not a new phenomenon. And we know who is involved. Um, now, what we are lacking, and Belgium is, cannot do it alone, we have to do it together with our international partners, is to, to, to find a way to make sure that this type of behavior, which is uh, like pirates, if you want, um, people stealing, um, that this uh, behavior is not rewarded. Um, we, we just um, found, uh, together with the G7 countries, something similar about uh, Russian diamonds, that um, they should clearly be labeled as Russian and they will no longer be sold on, on Western market, on G7 uh, uh, markets. Uh, maybe we should find something similar about cobalt. Um, but we do talk uh, with many of our partners, but I don't have a miracle solution, but we fully agree that it is an issue. Hello, thank you for coming out to today. Um, what would you say devolution looks like in Belgium? The evolution of? Yeah, uh, what would devolution look like in Belgium? The devolution? Yes. Well, the, the, the trend, as I mentioned earlier, since 1970, is um, uh, towards ever more devolution to the regions and communities. You know, we have a very complex system with uh, eight parliaments, different parliaments. For some uh, treaties, we have uh, to have a, a ratification by seven uh, parliaments, so it, it's quite complex. But the, the fact of the matter is, it works and uh, it is directly linked to the result of elections. So since um, 1970, there has been a clear wish uh, among the population to go towards more devolution. So we respect the wish of, uh, of the, the population, especially that whenever we want to change the constitution, we need a majority of two-thirds in parliament and at least 50% in the north and 50% in the south. So there are clearly democratic guarantees um, and, and, and respect for uh, everybody in the country. And it, it will depend on, on the result of the next election in June. So whether we, we go one step further or we believe it's, it's enough for now or that we, we should go back to a, a more uh, a federal policy in one or, or, or other field, it's up to the voters. And that's how democracy should work. Yeah, perhaps building on that, um, from a European perspective, what is your 
attitude about what seems to be the rising popularity of right-wing parties, um, the issue of immigration, um, and we see that, um, I think, ideology also sort of gaining traction here on this side of the Atlantic as well. Is that something you see as sort of part of the ebb and flow of normal politics, or is this something more existential? Um, I would say it's a part of, of both, but it, it's not the rise of right parties that is the problem. Uh, the problem comes from the rise of far-right parties, uh, because many of these parties uh, exhibit attitudes that are not democratic, i.e. Um, sometimes showing racism, um, which is con contrary to human dignity as we see it. Uh, clearly, that's, uh, that's the view of my government. Uh, and, and many governments, and actually I would say all governments in Europe, because we all are, uh, respect the, um, the European Declaration on Human Rights. Racism should be forbidden, period. No, no exception. Um, migration is a real issue, and this we should recognize. Um, how do we face uh, the, the issue? Is it by uh, examin examining the, the asylum request uh, uh, fast, faster? or by limiting the number of people, this can be discussed. Um, but once again, uh, if it is just about conservative views, I would say it's the normal realm of any democracy. You, you have to choose between right and left, uh, progressist, conservative, nothing uh, extraordinary. But whenever you see in parliament some parties, um, some voters, uh, criticizing the very existence of democracy. That is the danger. And actually, that's exactly what uh, Vladimir Putin is hoping for. Because his system, obviously, is not a democracy. Uh, he presents himself as the leader that everybody has to follow no, no matter what, and he hopes for a similar uh, system uh, in, in Europe. And this we should never allow. Thank you so much. Uh, as many of us students are heading to college and whether studying international relations, government, or political science, do you have any advice or something that you wish you know, knew to best utilize our time in college in our early 20s? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> please not just go out of Texas, but go out of the U.S. I know that the U.S. is huge, it's beautiful, but if you really want to have um, uh, an impact on the world, go outside. And please learn a foreign language, at least one. Uh, you know, I, I speak five, but I come from a tiny country in the middle of Europe. And even in my family, I had two. Um, but uh, just make sure that you're aware of what's beyond the borders of the United States. And I think it's very important, um, not just for international scholars or, or diplomats, just for the future of this world. Please remember this. You know how many million people we have on this planet? Eight billion. Well, together, the transatlantic relationship, Americans and Europeans, we are just 800 millions, which is barely 10% of the world's population. So if we want to defend our interests and uh, lifestyle in the future, we better keep track of that. Ambassador, thank you. This, <laughs> this has been...